I'm part of the fellowship. The fellowship. The fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up. Back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking. Smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the enemy. Pander at the pool of popularity. Or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes. Give until I drop. Preach until all know. And work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. All right. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good to see you. It's great to see you on this Super Bowl Sunday. I wanted to say something. Everyone's talking so much about this big game today. I thought the big game was yesterday when UCLA beat USC in basketball. So... I'm a bit confused what this is all about. So anyways, just had to get that out there. I have very few opportunities to say things like that because we're not usually in the W column. Anyways, we, like like talking as though I'm one of them. Anyways, I was not on the court yesterday, but I'm glad for the results. We're glad you're here today. So excited as we continue in this series called Inverted, Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. We're walking through the book of Daniel, the first half of it anyways, first six chapters. And I'm really glad to get to be here with you today. If you have a Bible today, book Bible, electronic Bible, if you want to get that to Daniel chapter 5, that's where we'll be at today. Inside your Trinity this week, I forgot to bring mine up. You have a set of notes or that nice goldenrod color. Get, a, get those out and you'll be able to track with us a little bit through what we're doing. We were very, very just blessed and encouraged to have Rick Langer here with us last week. Did an amazing job. I got to watch the service online once I got home. I, by the way, I just want to tell you this crazy group of men from this church called Flipside in Rancho as the sixth men's retreat I've spoken at for them in a row. There are so many better speakers on the planet. There's something wrong with them. I don't know what it is, um, but we just had a great time. We're up in the mountains in Wrightwood over uh, that last weekend. I was able to get back, though, in time for uh, Rick's afternoon uh, presentation. I wanted to say something about that. If you didn't get there, we called it a winsome workshop based on the book he co-wrote, uh, called Winsome Persuasion. We taped the audio of that presentation. Uh, it's, I think, about a couple hours long. It's on our website. So if you would like to listen to that later this week, didn't get a chance to attend, that's available for you. Wanted to make you aware of that. Also, Rick uh, underestimated us. We bought out all his books last week, and a lot of you bought some in advance because he'd run out. Those books are here today at the Welcome Center. So if you bought a book last week or more, <clears throat> they're out there. You can pick them up under your name, and we'll get you all ready to go. Now, I had a very specific announcement for this service. If you look around, we are experiencing some great growth at the 930 hour, which is awesome. 
Uh, but it is problematic sometimes to find a chair. So I just want to put this out to you, especially if you, and let me even, let me even nuance this. If Trinity's been your home church for a while, I would expect more flexibility for those of us who've been here longer than shorter. So I'll just leave it at that. If you have the availability, though, to go to a different service, either our 8 o'clock, which is really early, or our 11.15, which is encroaching on lunch. So I know why you picked this hour. I do. I get it. I would do the same. I'm here for all three, but I would pick this one, too. <clears throat> but I want to put that out to you. If you'd consider uh, maybe switching to another service, uh, that would help us and give us more seats at this service. But we just appreciate you being here and just think about that. It's this very soft kind of appeal, but one, nonetheless, that would help us a little bit. And we have some great people on our usher and welcome team that are helping people find seats all the time. So I appreciate you guys very much. Well, let's do this. We're going to dive in today. As we do, we've been looking at this series with a, a real uh, specific reason. Why did we talk about Daniel at this uh, time of the year and in this way? And our whole goal is this. Sometimes we get discouraged by the degrees of godlessness all around us, a culture that is living according to God's word, not according to our opinion, according to God's word upside down. And so it gets discouraging to know, God, how do we live right side up? But we, it's good to gain some perspective from other people who have followed God in even more challenging situations and settings than ours. And that's why we're looking to the book of Daniel. And um, what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been talking about four axioms every week that help us uh, kind of navigate this terrain. Because here's what we want to do. We want to live in the correct tension of really walking God's way. I love one of them. There should be like some phrases or, or quotes that have been going on during this series. None of them of me. They're of other sources, but they have been so helpful to me. And I remember from one of our commentaries, we talked about living a life that's considerate yet determined. Considerate yet determined. That's the path we want to walk. And so, God, how do we live that life? Because on the one hand, we want to stay away from the extreme of simply blending in and simply no longer honoring God in the things that we face. But on the other hand, we don't want to come here on Sundays and just culture bash. There's no value in that. So how do we walk this line that says, God, we want to honor you in our relational worlds, in our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our extended family? How do we do that in a way that honors you and in a way that still gives us the opportunity to be a people of influence. So that's what this series has been about. Here are these four axioms that are meant to help us live in that tension. The first one, Christians have always lived in oppositional cultures. Read the book of Acts. Read church history and you'll find that it's, just, it's actually been a very unique reality that we've lived in a country for over 200 years that's been very favorable to our faith. That is unique. Most people groups have never known that. They don't know it today around the world. So as things begin to turn, we are actually experiencing what the majority of Jesus followers experience. We've been in the minority. Number two, our enemy is Satan, not people. When there are going to be people within our culture that it's so hard with the, the, the attitudes that they're voicing or the actions that they're taking, we can easily confuse Truly who the Bible teaches us is our enemy, and it's never another person because people can always be redeemed. God is this great reconciler of people, of us. Look at your life, who you were before you knew Christ. Praise God that people didn't give up on you and absolutely that God didn't give up on you. Satan is the enemy, not people. Number three, God calls us to rescue people, not the culture. 
What that's not saying, it's not saying that having an influence in public policy doesn't matter or isn't necessary, but what it is saying is let's not jump to stating more laws and defending rights. Let's talk to the people in our worlds and be a people of influence at a grassroots relational level. Number four, disagree with opinions, not people. And the reason why we say that, it's so easy when someone has a view different than yours to think that the sum total of who they are is that one particular view or those two particular opinions. Rick did a great job on that with us last weekend talking about issues that we have that would be, again, it's not so much about what our opinions or views are. We're saying, hey, the word of God says, yes, it does. But for someone who's living and, and their opinion is different than that, to assume that that's the entirety of who they are and therefore to, to totally write them off as people rather than, A, see the things that actually are in common or B, recognize, God, I want to be a person of influence because this person, just like so many of us, may change their mind. These are four truths that we've been walking through weekly to help us. God, how do we walk this tension? Now, we're looking today again at the, the narrative in the book of Daniel about Daniel, but I'm really excited about this one today because it is very different than our others. We've read mainly about young Daniel and his young friends. We've even talked so many times when Daniel and his friends asked for a different set of food. They were about 15 years old, where some of our high school students are at today and having that kind of courage. Daniel today, we're going to read, he's 80 years old. Both ends of the spectrum and at both stages of life, both ends of this reality continue to walk with courage and confidence in God. So I love as we think of even another age spectrum within Trinity Church, how God wants to keep using us and he's not done with us. And that's exciting to me as well. So where did this confidence and courage come from? It's our now what idea this week. It's in your notes and on the screen. Since God will rebuke the proud... Remain in a posture of humility toward him and others. God is going to take care of rebuking the proud. Stay in a position of humility. Number one in your notes today, let's start. Don't be surprised when upside-down leaders do upside-down things. And we've seen something like this before already in our notes during this series, but it bears true once again that we're going to read about a king who absolutely dis dishonored and disgraced the God of Daniel, the God of all of us, the one true God, and what takes place as a result. Let's kick in. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at a long set of um, verses at the beginning. It says, for this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, they drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, a bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's another way of saying they praised their own Babylonian gods while they're drinking from these very special and set-aside goblets from the temple of Yahweh, a way of saying, look whose gods won. That's basically what's happening. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. 
Then he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So this is, there's a lot at stake here. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom, watch this, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like, like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. <gasps> Come up for air. Whew, it's a lot of reading. It's great. So we're reading in this narrative. This is a narrative that many of you have some reference of called the writing on the wall. And we'll kind of explain a little bit more of that in a minute. But as we walk through, that's probably one of the key pieces to know is that from the beginning, this doesn't happen right after where we were last week in chapter four. That can be challenging sometimes as we read the Bible. We're just reading chapter after chapter. And when there's no explanation, if you were here last week when Rick was here, he was talking about a king mentioned that we read Nebuchadnezzar. That's, so if you just kind of read it, well, chapter four ends, and now all of a sudden we have a new king named Belshazzar. I guess he's next. Well, there's actually some things that went on in between, so let me fill in some of those gaps. First, Nebuchadnezzar died in 563 BC, and the narrative we're looking at today in chapter five is in 539. That's 24 years of difference. So a lot happened in that gap. Historians tell us that three kings followed Nebuchadnezzar until we get to the king we're talking about today. They had very short reigns. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, four plus decades as the main you know, national leader. We can't even imagine that kind of reign as far as length and longevity. But right after him, three quick kings, all of them assassinated by the other. So it's a lot of turmoil, a lot of crazies going on in Babylon until a guy named Nabonidus who takes the throne. Now, Nabonidus is a king. He is not from the, the bloodline of Nebuchadnezzar, but he marries one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. So now all of a sudden, he's kind of joining these two houses, his own bloodline and that of Nebuchadnezzar. So here we are today, Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, Nabonidus was Belshazzar's dad. So here's where we're at. Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's maternal grandfather, okay? So this guy, Belshazzar, we're reading about mainly today, he is Nebuchadnezzar's maternal grandson. He's down on that line. So now, as we know a little bit more of the clarity and the history, let's dive into a couple pieces of that. When this narrative is taking place, Persia is strong. They're growing very, very strong. And so Nabonidus, as he is the king, he is the, and we'll say it a little bit confusing. Well, I thought Belshazzar was a king. Let me explain. 
Nabonidus goes out and Persia is creeping in upon the outer regions of his kingdom. So Nabonidus takes a group of troops and they go out to the outer edge. He leaves his son, Belshazzar, in command while he's gone. So that's why as we refer to this today, Belshazzar is really the prince standing in as king who's going to uh, do this foolishness. So within this context, within this space, Nabonidus is out there. Now in the meantime, here's what's happened. Persia is incredibly powerful, growing stronger by the day. They have, set a, 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 they have besieged the city of Babylon. So they have troops all around the city, and they're there camping out, basically trying to um, provide a lack of water, lack of food, like we've read before that other kingdoms have done, because this walled city won't be able to go. People can't go inside or outside. So that's our whole hope. We're going to starve them out, basically. Well, here's the wild thing. Did you read the beginning of this passage? Belshazzar throws a feast for a thousand people. Their city is surrounded by uh, a foreign army waiting to take them out, and they're throwing parties. Something seems wrong, and here's the crux of the matter. Belshazzar was king of Babylon, standing anyways, as king of the city of Babylon. Babylon's walls were so thick and so high, a foreign invader had never broken that gap for over a thousand years. Over a thousand years, they have been a safe city that nobody has gotten through the fortress of their walls. So there is an incredible sense of pride, an incredible sense of arrogance. And basically, Belshazzar's posture was, hey, my dad's out fighting on the outer front. He's going to defeat Persia on his way back. We have plenty of food. We have plenty of water. We're going to be fine. On his way back, he's going to attack the troops that are surrounding our city, and he's going to liberate us all. So in the meantime, let's party it up. That's kind of the attitude of what's going on. So an incredible amount of arrogance. And when I think of this phrase, obviously, or this narrative, we always think about pride coming before the fall. Believing that significant tragedy can't happen to you because it never has has been the famous last thoughts of so many conquered peoples. And this is exactly his posture. Now, as this is going on, he has this amazing party Then he actually then takes not only what is a foolish step, but now a step that's going to, in a very strong, um, pointed way, he's going to blaspheme the God of Israel. We mentioned a minute ago, he takes these items. Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, defeated Israel, takes um, items out of Jerusalem's temple, the temple to Yahweh, very sacred, very much reserved for the priests of God. And now these have been put into a storehouse. Now, on the one hand, that was done very much. They're, they're trophies of war. We've beat you. We took your highly valuable things and brought them here. It's not as though Nebuchadnezzar didn't have enough gold or silver. It's not as though his grandson, Belshazzar, doesn't have enough wine goblets in the kingdom. He's going to be very personally Um, dishonoring to God because he says to a servant, go get the goblets that we know were set aside for this Yahweh, this ruler of Israel, this king of Israel, this uh, God of Israel, bring them back and we're going to use them as common wine glasses. So you have to see what's going on. This is more than we ran out of cups. Let's go grab some from the storehouse. This is we want to show that our gods are stronger than Yahweh because you even read in the text that then they went on to basically give their gods praise while they were drinking from these chalices. 
The arrogance and the pride of this prince in standing as king would prove to be more than his own personal downfall, but the downfall of a nation even that very night. Now, we have kind of blended this idea of living right side up in an upside down world. We've talked about the idea of living upside down, kind of synonymous with dishonoring God, living in opposition to God's ways. And that's where we see this today, is that this idea that upside down leaders behave in ways that dishonor God. That's just part of that reality, part of their distinction. And we don't see this just 2,500 years ago in a place called Babylon. We see it in our own culture today. We see it in our own country. Whether it be in Washington, D.C., or whether it be in the Inland Empire, you have eyes, you have ears, you have a Bible, you understand people are making decisions all the time that walk in the face of what God has designed for how we ought to live. And the reality is this, what we're going to see today is how is your posture? How do you respond when they're living in this way? Belshazzar's folly ends with a supernatural manifestation of the very God that he's blaspheming, who, interestingly enough, just writes down four words. Four words, not a paragraph, not a narrative, four short words that are going to be very telling for Belshazzar. So when you have a spiritual question, make no no, uh, mistake, Belshazzar understands this is a miraculous thing. This doesn't happen that just magical fingers show up in a room and start writing on a wall. There's something supernatural here. So what does he do? He asks for his spiritual advisors. And these wise men from around the kingdom, they come. As they look, they have no idea what this would mean or the, the... the interpretation of these words, and this causes Belshazzar all the more to be terrified. This is the thing I want you to see, though, today. It's at this point that the queen, and remember, since he is really more like a prince, this actually isn't his wife, it's his mom. So Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, right? And then you're kind of now doing the math because Daniel was deeply involved. The first four chapters of Daniel are all about when King Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, His daughter, the queen, comes to him and reminds him of an old man that his grandfather used to use for occasions just like these, which we might say, why were there occasions just like these? This is crazy and bizarre and weird. Yeah, they happened a lot, actually, during um, these four young men, Daniel and his three friends, their time in uh, Babylon. And look how she describes him. Nebuchadnezzar had called on him numerous times because he seemed to have the spirit of the gods in him that enabled him to understand mysteries to everyone else. I think this part of the narrative is so powerful as we're processing this today because she thinks back to when she was a young girl. Chances are that she would have been a young girl when Daniel would have been summoned into the palace. And she didn't just hear of the reputation of Daniel. She probably even interacted with him. It's that memory, it's that experience with him from maybe decades before that now comes right to the mind when there's confusion and chaos. And she encourages her son to pursue him in this situation. I want you to see today, this should help us understand the power of reputation, the power of the way that we influence people, what it is you leave with someone about the way that you love God, about the way that you love people, about the way you live your life, it matters. Because when people's worlds go into chaos, when they're in moments of crisis, they remember you. 
Here's some New Testament directives that remind us that this is really the way that we ought to live and because of the opportunities that we'll be afforded if we would honor God with our lives. From Colossians 4, you can just note the reference in your notes. Verses 5 and 6, it says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The word outsiders is not meant to be a derogatory word. It simply means those who aren't in the family of God yet. Be wise on how you treat them. From Titus 3, Paul writing to a pastor of a church that was on the island of Crete, this is what he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to get underneath the governing authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. These are powerful directives that Paul's giving to say, hey, how you treat people who are not yet in the family of God matters deeply. And as you do so, do so with the opportunity to both be an influence today, but maybe even more importantly, an influence tomorrow. In your notes, here's a great principle to hold on to. When you're living a Jesus honoring, in a Jesus-honoring way among the people that you do life with, then when those in your world who don't know the love and life of Jesus go through crisis seasons, they'll know to turn to you. And by the way, I'm, for many of you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You've experienced this on more than one occasion. People that you have had in your relational world through your job or through your neighborhood, your extended family, your school, your classmates, then as you have just simply demonstrated the love of God, have you simply walked in a way that's wanting to please him, never without flaw, but along this way as they're watching you, then their world turns upside down. And guess what? It's not even you saying, hey, could I pray for you and what you're going through right now? It's them coming to you. Everything's falling apart. Would you, would you just say a prayer for me? I, I don't know what to do in this series of relational calamity that I'm in. What would you do? I am looking for anything. I'll try anything right now. These are the kind of statements they've made to you and watch they did so because you demonstrated previously that you were someone who loved them and someone they could trust. Daniel was this person. Didn't even know the king is the appearance, but definitely knew his mom. And as a result, she's quick to consider him. Demonstrate Jesus on the plains, and they'll know to whom to turn to when they descend into the valleys. Demonstrate him in the everyday stuff of life, and people will know, but beyond anything else, at least I know this about him, about her, and maybe they can help. So here's 80-year-old Daniel. He's summoned to come before this king, Belshazzar, to interpret what these four things, these four words mean. It's one thing to disagree with a leader's decision because you think it lacks wisdom or is self-serving, but what happens when you stand before a leader who has intentionally blasphemed your God? What do you do then? Well, good news, Daniel did something and we can watch. Let's look at it. Number two in your notes, speak the truth as God's ambassador when you're called upon to do so. Speak the truth as God's ambassador when you're called upon to do so. Picking up the narrative, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. 
Like, I'm not doing this because of what you're promising. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, and watch how he addresses the most high God. I love it. Today, already in our worship music, we've been singing about the only king who lives forever. Daniel resonates with that same title. The most high God God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. And by the way, when Daniel's saying that, he's not just saying, I heard stories. Every one of those situations, Daniel and his friends lived. Seemingly always at the mercy of Nebuchadnezzar. But watch what he says next. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, That's huge. We'll look at that today. You had the example of Nebuchadnezzar right in front of you. You've heard of your grandfather, but you paid no attention. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drink wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote this inscription. This is the inscription that was written, mene, mene, tekel, tekel, I'm sorry, parson. Here's what these words mean, mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. All right, let's back up. What are we looking at? Daniel begins recounting for Belshazzar the family history he definitely knew but had disregarded. I appreciate this last week when Rick was here. He's walking us through Daniel 4. And and we saw that when he looks over the city of Babylon and says, what great things my hands have done. The incredible audacity to believe this was all because of his power and leadership. God does an amazing thing to him, makes him basically go out of his mind. He has a a mental disease. We actually have a name for it. It's called boanthropy. It's actually a real thing, not just from then, but from today. And so the idea that when it's a psychological disorder, when someone believes himself or herself to be a bovine, to be some sort of an ox or a cow, Still occurs when people live in a delusional state. Here's a picture, an artist rendering anyways, of maybe what that would have looked like. This is the king of the world power. No one's greater on the planet than Babylon and its leader, Nebuchadnezzar. But the Bible says, I think it was for six years, he is forced to go out and to basically act completely out of his mind. And in this reality, when we're processing this, we're trying to think, God, what is it that you do to humble the proud? It's amazing what he has in his toolbox. This kind of reality, and I appreciate when you think about, when you're even looking at Daniel 4, questions have always come up. Well, who was running the kingdom when the king was out in the field? 
And whether it be underlings or even Daniel himself, Daniel has the courage to tell him, King, God is going to judge you because of your arrogance. Daniel tells Belshazzar he made the same foolish mistake. He's not humbled himself before Yahweh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had learned is the one true God who is to be feared. But he desecrated items from his temple and he belittled him in comparison to non-gods. He notes that Belshazzar is especially responsible because he knows the power and authority that Yahweh wields. He knows the God that Nebuchadnezzar knew, knows at least of him, knows of the stories, but still chooses to do his own thing. I want to tell you, I've done a lot of counseling, a lot of conversations with people in, in things that they've worked through and challenges that they've had. I'll never forget, uh, as a youth pastor, I was working with students, and I would talk often to students who had an older brother or sister. And it would be interesting to me how many times they would make statements like this, watching my older sibling, I definitely know what not to do, right? I know the mistakes not to make, whether it be in defiance to our parents, whether it be in different attitudes or, or activities that they did, they saw the ruin of that. Now, what's fascinating is, They got it. They understood something. And this is the axiom they understood. You can always learn from a bad example. You see, some of us are here today and you go, you know what, Todd, I had a horrible relationship with my parent or parents. You know, Todd, I had this horrible experience on the job. You know, Todd, I had this horrible experience um, being near someone and watching what happened in their lives. And I want to tell you this. It is great to learn from good examples. I hope you do. I hope your radar is up and you're looking for people that have walked and are walking this road of following Jesus farther down the road than you, just even a little bit, and learning what to glean from them and how to walk in ways that they're modeling for you. But to assume that the bad examples you've had in your life are worthless is to miss this point that Belshazzar missed. I should have seen the things that were going on with my grandfather and the way that he turned his back on Yahweh and recognized that's not a good idea. Don't discard bad examples in your life and think that they're not valuable. Think you can't learn from them. Learn from others concerning their decisions, like watching the fallout of a decision to leave one's spouse, watching the consequences of poor financial choices, Watching the devastation that comes when someone is mastered by an addiction or some other kind of self-destructive behavior. Watch and learn. Those examples are there for you just as much as the good ones. Look at the great phrases that describe this all-expansive power of Israel's God. Daniel describes him as the Lord of heaven. Look at the opposition. They were praising the God of wood and stone and gold and iron, the the gods of this place. Daniel says, Yahweh is the God of heaven. All expansive is who he is. And I appreciate the verdict so much. You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Daniel said that it was Yahweh who sent the hand that wrote the word. So this isn't just like a bizarre spiritual encounter or magical thing. Yahweh himself wrote the words on the wall. We see another, again, supernatural enabling of God to Daniel to even know what these words, the interpretation, what they were to mean. Here were the words, mene. It means numbered or counted out or measured. 
God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. Tackle the idea of the word weighed. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And the word perez, to divide. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And commentators would say that that word perez is actually a word play. It looks a lot like the nation whose kingdom is going to be handed over, Persia. So these four words have this meaning now, and now he understands. And yet again, I want you to see this. We said that throughout this series, some really quotable ideas have surfaced. This one from Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon. Daniel was convinced that God was in control of who was in control. Daniel was convinced that God was in control of who was in control. Because guess why? This would be a very frightful moment when you're going to tell a powerful king bad news. You've heard the phrase before, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. It's not as though you support the news. It's not as even though it necessarily came from you. You're just the messenger. Daniel was the messenger, but he wasn't afraid of Belshazzar because he knew God is in control of who's in control. Sometimes if this narrative's new to you, it's all new, but if you've heard it before, I think sometimes we, we elevate certain parts of this narrative sequence of Daniel We would say it took great courage for Daniel to pray to God for both Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of chapter two. Because the fear was, if it doesn't happen, you're all getting executed. We'd say in chapter three, it took great courage for his three friends to stand when everybody fell on their face. But I want to tell you in chapter one, when Daniel requested, King, could we please have food that would be in line with the dietary rules that God has given us, that took courage. In chapter four, when he has to say to a king, this elaborate dream that you've had, it's all about God judging you. And you're gonna be humbled. That took incredible courage. You see, people who brought bad news to kings, kings who were powerful, kings who were insecure, the way you get rid of bad news is you get rid of the messenger. So chapter five, for Daniel to read these four words, to say what they meant, this was not good news. And yet he did so with the same confidence and courage that he had when he was 15. And he simply says, God is going to take care of your arrogance and your pride. Just because he was 80 this time and not 15 doesn't make it any less courageous. I would say to the opposite, he had so many now decades of experiences and experiences and experiences of God's faithfulness that this became true in his life. I put it to you as a question in your notes, a simple question. The longer that you're following Jesus, are you growing in your confidence of how big he is and how much you can trust him? The longer that you're following Jesus, are you growing in your confidence of how big he is and how much you can trust him? Because here's the simple answer, you should be. Now, that's not meant to be a condemning phrase by me. It's just the simple nature of having followed Jesus year over year, decade over decade. It continues to provide support for itself. Back in, at the end of this last calendar year, our last service of the year on the 31st of December, our whole service was kind of around this idea of what we called stacks of rocks. In the Old Testament, when God just showed up in a very powerful, strong way, 
He would either sometimes direct the people or the people just on their own would go, we need to set up a stack of rocks here and name this. Why? So we don't forget and because so our kids won't forget what God has done here. These altars, they were stacks of rocks. Nothing was sacrificed on these altars. They were just literally reminders. So what we did on the 31st is we talked about, Larry led us in this idea, what are the stacks of rocks that you would look back to in 2017? It's a great time. Rather than being so interested in what I'm going to do different next year, let's take time to ask the question, what did God do this year? And as we spent some time right here in this room writing stuff down, young and old, what are the ways that God has demonstrated his faithfulness to you? It was a powerful morning, powerful to consider even in just one year what God has done. Now, some of us would say, you know, Todd, if I'm just real honest with you, honest with myself, more importantly, when I look into the mirror, I just have to say, I feel like my faith is frail. I feel like I have a really hard time trusting God for the things that come into my life, the relationships in my world. I really struggle with this, and I don't know that I have a lot of rocks. I don't know that I have stacks I can look back to and see his faithfulness. And if that would be you today, can I just say something? I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad because it would begin with honesty. Don't you love it? In the Gospels, a father had a son who was being afflicted. He brings him to the disciples first. Disciples aren't able to help him. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and this man admits to Jesus, Jesus, I don't have enough faith. Watch this, but I want to. If you're here today and you would say, God, I really want to trust you. I want to have confidence in who you are and how you work in the situations in my life. That's really where it begins. But I'll caution you, it doesn't stop there. People on your row that are sitting with you today who would say, I've seen God just continue to be so faithful to us, continue to meet needs, etc., etc. Guess what? They don't have stacks of rocks just because they want them. It's not something you just kind of in your mind just go, this is going to be a new me, new year. You know where it begins? It begins with the decision you're staring at today. It's not about just going, God, in the really big moments, because guess what? In the really big moments, if, you, if you're faced with something that's going to completely need and come from a place of confidence in who God is, it doesn't come unless you've trusted him in the smaller things. All of this, all of this down here is building and preparing me. What did we see in James last year? so that I could have confidence, that I can have perseverance and keep trusting God. That's why I can count it joy for the trials I'm in today. So if you want to begin to grow in your courage and your confidence, if you want to begin to say, God, I want to have a faith that really trusts you for things, don't wait for the next big thing. Trust him for the thing you're staring at today. And you might say, Todd, I'm trusting him for, I'm staring at a big thing. Okay, then start there. But the longer you keep putting it off, the longer you keep saying, well, when I get in a certain season, then I'll trust God for X, is the longer that true, life-changing, transformative faith is waiting for you. Today. Today, say, God, this thing I'm staring at today, 
Help me to step out believing you, believing how you'll provide, believing how you'll protect, confident in your character. That's where it begins. And that's what we see in Daniel. Daniel had so many other experiences, and and we admire them, there's no doubt. But as we do, we have to realize each of those other turns in chapters one and two and four, it was because Daniel was trusting God in all of those situations so he could trust him in chapter five. I love that this narrative occurs late in Daniel's life because it's a response that should be exemplary to so many of us who feel at times like we question our own usefulness or feel like we should maybe just be put out to pasture. I want to tell you that's bad thinking on every front and not the thinking that we want to promote at Trinity Church. I'm actually so encouraged as I interact with you, the people of Trinity Church, for how many of us, even at a later stage of life, even at a time when others would say, this is the time to check out. You said, you know what? I really believe God still has something for me. I really believe God wants to use me in people's lives. I really believe that there's an opportunity to exercise leadership or exercise servanthood, and you are. I love that. I love the vitality of our church across the board, not just reserved for the young, not just reserved for adults who are somewhere in the middle of lives, but even those who might be towards the end, being able to say, God, I'm here. I want to be faithful. I want to be used by you no matter where I am. That was Daniel's posture. Daniel brings up, by the way, he wouldn't have had this at 15. He has these, this amazing story of history, right? He brings that to Belshazzar. He would have never known of Nebuchadnezzar's story early on, but because he had the history, he could bring it up as part of the lesson to Belshazzar. But I also want you to know this, he didn't live in the past. Though Daniel referenced it and said, hey, you should have learned from your grandfather, he's also able to say, but I'm standing here in front of you today, giving you exactly what God's wanting you to hear. I'm not over here on the shelf, I'm not living in glory days, I'm here in front of you and I'm telling you what God would have me to say today. What a great attitude. I love, for the people at Trinity, I love your vigor and your enthusiasm as you live out your mission all of us, it's for young, it's for old, of being a people who are rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And, and why is that? Why is that so easy to see that it fits all stages of our development? Because all of us need a personal relationship with Jesus where our roots continue to dig deeper into who he is, while all of us also have a relational world that God wants to use us to be people of influence, young and old alike. You living out your mission at every stage of your life is so exciting to me and helping others around you do the same. I gotta say, I just kind of think that's the simple definition of the mark of Christian maturity. Following Jesus and helping others around you to do the same. It boils down to that. Let's finish today. Number three, don't assume God's role of judging upside down people. Don't assume God's role of judging upside down people. Let me define the word judging, by the way. I watched Rick's message last week and I I loved it. And he talked about judging, I thought, in a very compelling way. What does that even mean? This sense of judging, what I'm talking about, is that of decreeing what is happening and what's not. God's ultimate place of saying, this is how it will go and this is how it will not. That's no human being's business. That's what I mean by the word. Let's finish the text. Chapter 5, verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Remember, that kind of makes sense because Belshazzar is only the second highest. 
So he's not giving his own job away. You can be third, okay? That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That reads pretty uh, small, doesn't it? (laughs) A major worldwide power was defeated that night and a new guy put on the throne. Short amount of words. Well, let's unpack it a little bit as we wrap up today. Because Daniel knew that Belshazzar's kingdom was going down in flames, to be awarded third highest in that kingdom didn't mean a whole lot. That's why he said, just keep it. Earlier this season, our football coach, Jim Mora, got fired. And so I keep saying our, sorry, UCLA's. And, um, and so imagine getting hired on his staff the night before they fired him. It's kind of the same idea. Right? Hey, you're going to be the new offensive line coach. Cool. You're all done tomorrow. By the way, and actually being promoted to third highest in the kingdom probably put more of a target on Daniel's back than anything else. He'd been pulled out of retirement just so he can now be a new target. Woohoo! Thanks, Belshazzar. So you read his posture, he's not impressed. The end of the narrative is kind of puzzling and seems almost miraculous in a sense. How does a massive world empire like Babylon transfer leadership to another world power overnight? with no massive long-term battle. Well, here's the interesting thing. Though the Bible doesn't record this, historians do. And listen to what they say. This is how Babylon was overthrown when Belshazzar was ruling the city. The Persians who were waiting outside, remember they were besieging the city, just kind of waiting to starve them out, etc. They're brilliant. The Euphrates River, the mighty Euphrates River, went right into the city of Babylon. It was a massive water supply. That's why the Babylonians weren't upset. They're like, we'll be fine. We have plenty of water and food. They went upstream to the Euphrates, which is a massive river, not a creek. And they diverted not all of its water, but part. Had they diverted all the water, the Babylonians would have been aware something's up. But they only diverted part so that now these tunnels where the water went through who would have been way above any person's ability to swim, or they could have swum, but they they were too long to get through. Now, all of a sudden, they dropped the water to mid-thigh. So the water supply is diverted, and now they walk through these tunnels that get to the city of Babylon, mid-thigh water, and they go and they conquer a city. That's impressive, and that's from history. That's not something, if we struggle sometimes, like, how accurate is the Bible? Interesting, without all the, the reasons why, the Bible plainly describes what happened that night. By the way, it's exactly what God had foretold with his writing on the wall. You've heard that phrase before. You didn't know where it came from. It's from Daniel 5. And let me remind you, the next time you use it, it always refers to bad news. Okay? If you hear all the writings on the wall, nothing good's coming next. Okay? Here's what I want you to take away from the ending of this narrative with Belshazzar. Watch this. Don't worry about if God is going to be honored or not and somehow take up his cause, watch this, on your own. There are times to stand. We've talked about this throughout this narrative series has helped us. When the king says, bow down and worship that thing, we don't. But we also don't need to go around wagging fingers. Watch this. Daniel never burst into the palace of the banquet hall. He was summoned. Do you see that distinction? He didn't bring big signs and he didn't have to yell A king wanted to know, what does this mean? And he spoke the truth. This should be our same posture, considerate yet determined. And if he does, if God does call you to speak on his behalf and represent him, represent him by the Holy Spirit's power in the presence of your life and indeed be an ambassador to your world. 
Here's our now what idea this week. Since God will rebuke the proud, remain in a posture of humility toward him and others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this narrative. It's um, like all these others. It has such a powerful message about how ought we to live in a culture, God, that doesn't esteem you. And God, help us to walk that tension. Help us on the one side not just to blend in, but on the other side not to bash. There's no value in either of those. God, help us walk a line that would be honoring to you because we are absolutely convinced that you are in control of who's in control. So in the middle of all that, God, help us stay on mission. Help us be a people who are rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And help us not lose that, lose perspective in the midst of whatever we face. You may be here today and we talked about people who are struggling with having faith. And honestly, your first step may relate to just generally even responding to what we call the gospel. Responding to Jesus' invitation that you would know him and that you would walk with him. And I want to encourage you, if that's you and you're here today, in the same way that we said for someone who is following Jesus, it begins by taking action with the thing that you're staring at. Start with what you're staring at. For you today as you're here, you're staring at, will I be a person who takes Jesus seriously, who recognizes that he truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and will I begin following him? If that's you, this is how it goes. You begin by admitting that you're a sinner. And I know that word in our culture is such a dirty word, but all the Bible means when it says that is that you've missed the mark. You've lived in a way that is opposed to God, just like we read in this narrative today. And, And without anything else, there is no hope. That's true for all of humanity, but be as believe. Believe that Jesus, he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that Jesus, how he lived and what he did, made a way available for you to be made right with God. He's the only savior available. See is choose. Choose today to take these words, even from the first four books of the New Testament, the gospels, they showed how Jesus lived. Follow his example. That's the gospel. That's your response to it. If you haven't made that decision yet, my prayer is you take it seriously today. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for giving us the ability to navigate in tough waters. Thank you that you are the king. We pray in your great name. Amen.